You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, Marketing Director for Studio 420. Are you looking to fund your cannabis business? Today I speak to Scott Jordan, founder of the Alternative Finance Network, for the lowdown on who is loaning money and investing in the mom-and-pop cannabis entrepreneurs. Scott has been brokering finance deals for the cannabis industry since 2013 and has relationships with all types of lenders, both public and private. He has witnessed the industry's growth from the start of legalization in Colorado and knows how to navigate the minefields of securing financing for your business. Let's meet Scott. Hi, Pam. How are you? I'm excited to talk to you. I have my whole list of questions here. I'm excited to talk to you, too. All right. Well, cool. So okay. I'll tur- so actually, if you can just give us an overview of Alternative Finance Network and the services you offer, because sure. I know in the cannabis industry, um, you know, the, the different services, whether it's equity finance or debt finance or a loan is to me makes more sense to call it a loan, but everybody calls your, your, your financing a debt financing. Um, so anyway, yeah, if you could give us an overview of alternative finance network and the services you offer. Sure. We provide access to debt capital for uh, c- growing companies that are looking to expand without giving up equity. Uh, we specialize in uh, debt because it's much better to grow your company without giving it up in the early stages, because in the early stages, your weakest, um, you don't have the results, you don't have the history. Why give up equity uh, if you can go ahead and get debt uh, to finance the cap, particularly when you're financing capital improvements, buildings, other things that are assets that go on your balance sheet, much better to be able to utilize debt for that. We also finance sale leaseback, which um, is also another way to extract uh, equity from your buildings by going ahead and selling that asset to um, a funding source and then having a long-term lease to lease it back so that you can use the asset without having to uh, give that asset up or have a unfriendly landlord. Mm. Uh, And I've been doing this personally since 2009, when I did my very first uh, loan for the dispensary I was a patient at here in Denver, Colorado. Oh, so that's how you got into it. Correct. Mm. So, but but then you would have to sell your property. You, would you be able to buy it back? You're saying eventually, or sometimes, uh, depending on the on the funding source that we go to, some will allow you, others will not allow you to uh, to purchase it. And that's one of the advantages of utilizing uh, the alternative finance network is because we have over 112 different funding sources and we know which funding sources will accommodate the needs and the desires that you have for that property. Um, Many people would like to improve the property they own and then eventually sell it. Um, And I can certainly understand that. It's a great way to build wealth for you and your family but not all lenders will allow someone that uh, opportunity and right to do that. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, do you mostly just work in Colorado or do you work with um, entrepreneurs all, all over the country? All over any state that it's legal and also uh, in Canada as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, I know, like you said, you've been doing it since 2009, which is pretty early um, in the days of cannabis. Um, do you, I'm just curious, do you see a difference in the entrepreneurs who were in that you were dealing with in the market back in the early days versus those coming into it now? What, what is the, what is the difference? Absolutely. Tremendous difference. I mean, it's night and day it, you know, back in the day, back, uh, I got into the industry in 2009 and then full-time started focusing in 2013 because, uh, we legalized here in, uh, Colorado in 2014, and everyone had to build out uh, and become a vertically integrated company. So they needed money both for the grow and the dispensary. And there was absolutely no institutional money and really very, very little private money unless you knew family and friends because it was so new. No one know, knew what was going to happen. Uh, the early uh, people in the industry were really the activists, I think, and people that um, were operating in the gray market, some in the black market, wanted to see what it was like to cross over and be able to do things legally. Uh, very small operators for the most part, uh, undercapitalized uh, tremendously because Again, back in 2009, when they started instituting uh, licenses here, it was, uh, you know, like any, any other kind of business license, $25 and, you know, no regulations and no testing and no anything. So it was very easy and inexpensive uh, to get into it. Um, you know, as we've grown and matured as an industry, of course, fees have gone way up and, um, uh, you know, it's become very, very expensive and it's really become a large company, Wall Street, private equity type of money that's available because now I would not recommend someone get into the business without having somewhere between five and $10 million that they can afford to lose uh, if things don't go their way. It's just to, to grow or to have a retail dispensary, you know, it's just very regulatory expense, expensive very tax intensive. Uh, the ancillary end of the business, I think is really the place to go. Companies like myself, companies that provide software, POS, kind of, uh, you know, what we call the picks and the shovels of the industry. That's where I think the opportunity lies for many entrepreneurs, particularly those that don't have, you know, the type of money that you need in order to get into the business. Uh, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Um, I've heard that it's it's around two million to open a dispensary. Is it four? Is it eight million to open a cultivation facility? Is that? But you're saying to it depends on the state um, because each state, as you know, is individually licensed, has their own requirements, has their own uh, you know uh, set of uh, expenses. So it really depends on which state, but I would say those are probably a medium to medium to low estimations. And of course, cultivation depends, is it a 20,000 square foot or 100,000 square foot? Uh, because you'll have obviously a lot more expenses if you're outfitting a 100,000 square foot 
building than if you're outfitting a 20,000 square foot building. Right. That makes sense. You were saying that this has become like a, a, a real Wall Street kind of business. I mean, what about the small entrepreneurs out there? Are you, are you working with small entrepreneurs? I mean, it's very, it's very difficult without someone having a previous track record of success in the industry to get started, just to be perfectly honest with you. You know, if you're coming from healthcare or outside of the industry and you want to get into the industry, it's very, very expensive. It's very risky. There are a lot of, you know, hidden traps, I think, uh, and a lot of taxation and other things that are just, you know, it's very difficult. It's just not an easy situation to be able to, uh, you know, to come in from the outside. Again, on the on the ancillary side, it's a lot easier because number one, you can sell in all 50 states. Uh, number two, you've got a product that could be used for other types of businesses, perhaps you know, psychedelics is now the up and coming uh, rage. I just spoke to someone today that's, um, you know, uh, they were uh, a um, CPA firm that was getting into, um, you know, marijuana. And now they've taken on their first psychedelics customers. You know, you see the Benzinga integrated psychedelics into their, um, you know, uh, trade show had a whole day all by itself. So, it's becoming, you know, larger and larger play for, um, for people just because it's so expensive and the taxation is so challenging, you know, for many people um, because, you know, with 280E, you're unable to deduct anything other than cost of goods sold. So for a retailer, you know, that's a very small portion of their costs. Right, right. I've, yeah, I've heard other people say this too. go into an ancillary business of some sort. Um, so, so what is the criteria for, I mean, like the basic criteria for when you assess someone, um, you know, what are some of the red flags or what, what is the process? If I was coming to talk to you seriously about it, um, I, I, I know as a new entrepreneur, like you said, if, if I don't have any track record or, you know, it's not, it's just not going to work. And I understand that it's, it's a complete risk. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give myself money either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, well, actually I do want to ask you who, what kind of company was the psychedelics company? Are they creating a product or is it, they're, what, what's they're, happening out in that world? Like, what are they starting to develop? Um, really it's for research. Um, I haven't really spent, uh, any time other than, uh, you know, a very cursory, um, you know, amount of a look in because there's so much business and there's so much availability and so much need in the, um, you know, in the marijuana cultivation and in the dispensary business, particularly for the, uh, multi-state and single state operators that are very large. That's really where I focused in my time and energy because they can qualify for financing. They have the um, the track record as well as they have the assets and the cash flow to be able to get the loans that are needed to be able to expand their um, cultivation and also build out their retail for, footprint. Is there any entrepreneur that just kind of you know was not an MSO that was able to get a loan through you? 
and is successful to this day, so like from since you've been around since 2009, is there someone that stands out in your mind where a little guy kind of made it through for some reason? And what would that, re you know, how did he do it? She do it? You know, the success stories that I can talk about, because I'm under NDA with, uh, you know, all of my clients, um, this is an NDA intensive business here, mm. is um, I helped a company called Green Solutions go from four stores to 20 stores and eventually got bought out by Columbia Care uh, for $142 million. And then I also helped uh, Medicine Man go from uh, one store uh, to four stores. They got bought out also by Columbia Care. And that really seems to be the trend that the MSOs that have the money and the power are uh, taking and almost treating the single store operators and the, uh, the smaller operators like the farm team and uh, are when they get to be a certain size and they've got the good location that they're looking for and everything's in place, they go ahead and you know buy that business up. Uh, for the small guy starting today, to be you know perfectly honest with you, it's not an easy road to hoe, just because there's so many landmines and there's so many other expenses and costs that uh, that um, are not. Uh, known to you until you actually get into the industry. And then uh, I was reading a statistic the other day from a Massachusetts dispensary, and he was citing all of the different taxations. He said, which I, I'm going to go back and, and take a look at that, that, um, you know, well over 50% of, of every dollar that's brought in goes to one of the government officials. So Governments are the ones that are really making out in this, uh, you know, early rush to get into cannabis, in my opinion. Yes, it's so obvious and they're killing us. You know, I've, I've spoken to a few business owners in California. They seem to be doing well and they've been in the industry a long time, but they said, honestly, we're like hanging by a thread. It's just the wrong way to do it. I'm sure I'm preaching yeah. to the choir. We all feel that way, but it's, it's so unfortunate that. It's, I agree. It's a real shame. Um, so how much do you think, how much of an impact will the rising interest rates have on businesses and, you know, trying to get funding and um, anytime expenses go up, it makes it harder. You know, we've seen uh, lenders now, you know, have a 125 basis point uh, increase, you know, in rates here. And, and so those that are borrowing from banks, yes, the rates are going to go up. Uh, those that are private money, have a little bit more flexibility because they're getting their money generally from other private people. Although we have access, uh, because I've been in the industry for so long, we have access to some banks that are actually participating in the industry and are quietly setting up lines of credit for some of the uh, larger lenders uh, that are out there doing, um, you know, lending into the space, either sell lease back or creating mortgages or other you know, types of instruments to relend to um, companies that are, you know, looking for growth capital. There is growth capital out there. It's just, you need to have what a lender is looking for. And what a lender is looking for is number one, the ability to look at repaying that loan. Uh, number two, they're looking for assets. Uh, and those assets uh, besides real estate, which is obviously the best and equipment, they also will utilize license value. So 
if you're in a limited license state like like where you are in Florida or um, Arizona where there's only 175 licenses, you can use the value of that license in order to uh, obtain capital. In fact, uh, we're working right now with a, a Massachusetts uh, operator that's got a couple of dispensaries that actually won the license organically, uh, one of the very first licenses in the state. So, you know, he spent maybe $100,000, $150,000 in order to win a license. That license is probably worth somewhere between $30 and $50 million. So a heck of a nice gain there from, um, you know, writing a good application and convincing, um, you know, the state officials that he was um, able to, you know, run and, uh, and create a, uh, a couple of marijuana dispensaries. And um, so that's a tremendous way to go as well. You know, New Jersey will have that because there's limited licenses there. Pennsylvania, you know, has that as well. So many of the East Coast states, um, you know, are going to the limited license model as opposed to Oregon, uh, Colorado, uh, and California, where, you know, it's, there's a heck of a lot of licenses out there. Therefore, the value of any license is not uh, as much. We have a license. Is it, is it a 15 year? I know it's very state to state, but is it, you can only have this license for 15 years? Is it unlimited? No, it's generally, it's unlimited as long as you don't violate one of the, uh, you know, provisions of the law or uh, are not in compliance you buy that license and you own it just like you'd own, you know, any other asset, you know, car. Is it transferable? I know the social equity, I think that's a different story. I think cannot transfer to a non-equity person. Uh, I think many states are adopting that. Each state has different requirements. Uh, each state will, uh, many will make you re-qualify because they don't want, you know, somebody from the cartel. Oh. Buying license and uh, give me your license exactly you know we don't want pablo escobar too coming over here you know with uh being able to start you know buying and selling uh you know marijuana legally so yes it's uh it's it's very individualized it's very technical there are a lot of things written in to agreements each time we look at doing a financing where we are using a license as collateral it takes a lot of legal um manpower to be able to you know get uh draft the right uh sections of the agreement to be able to make it work how about the uh safe banking act it seemed like we were closer on this next round of so first of all i think uh safe banking has as much chance of passing as you have of becoming the republican nominee for president in 2024 wow. okay oh, that's scary so uh it's 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 a fantasy, you know, as long as Mitch McConnell is in the Senate, uh, as long as, you know, you've got to have, uh, you know, uh, the senators agree on something, it's just not going to happen. I think it's, you know, very, very optimistic. If it did pass, though, uh, you know, one of the things that has really changed, I think, in the industry over the last three to four years is banking has not been a problem. As far as getting a bank account, in each state, it's probably eight to 15 credit unions or small banks that are willing to take your deposits. You've also got intermediary companies that 
have access to bank accounts uh, where you can get a bank account. So getting a bank account is no longer the big deal it was back in 2016 and 17. The issue with safe banking is it will protect the bankers from uh, getting prosecuted uh, in, 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 uh, for violating some of the rules, but there's still gonna be an intensive amount of scrutiny because of the cash that's involved in the industry. And that is not gonna go away. You're still gonna have to you know, report on transactions over $10,000 know, in cash. And it's just what we need is we need to have, in my opinion, we need to cut down on the violence uh, and the propensity for violence by removing cash from the retail stores. That to me is the number one biggest issue that we need to deal with. And um, MasterCard and Visa either need to get on board or there needs to be someone that's gonna come up with an alternative credit card that you know people can use like a Discover card or um, there's a company that I saw at Benzinga in November that is supposedly uh, close to introducing a card uh, called SuperNet, which is going to allow um, uh, charges to be made. But you know, right now it's uh, you know use a uh, ATM and get cash out, or you know again, the dispensaries are targets because there's so much cash there, and also um, there's a lot of product there that can be. Resold. Easily, easily resold. Uh, that's disappointing that you think that's not going to happen because it could really take the log jam out of things. I agree. I just want to tell you the truth, Pam. You know, yeah. I'm not going to, you know, blow smoke. And then also, I just want to go back for a second. You were saying that you have all these banks and, you know, that you can draw from the different types of loans that people are looking for, but you also have private um, equity, people like looking to invest in the industry with just some private um, equity. Yeah, that's uh, primarily my, my uh, investment network is private companies, not private equity, but companies that, for instance, lease equipment, companies that provide working capital loans, companies that provide real estate loans. Uh, what I've done is, since uh, I started full-time in the industry in 2013, have put together one by one a, a number of lenders that are cannabis friendly. And, uh, you know, I always ask them, which side of the green line are you on? Are you on the, uh, yes, you'll go ahead and uh, provide loans to, or are you on the no side? No, you're not gonna go ahead and provide loans to them. And if they do provide loans, then I get into a series of questions to find out um, you know, how much, what's the loan to value, what's the criteria, what are they seeking, uh, how many loans have they done? We do a pre-qualification of that lender to make sure uh, when we bring them into the network that they're going to be a quality person and uh, you know are not uh, somebody that's looking to take advantage of people that don't have a lot of, of uh, choices necessarily or don't know uh, in a lot of cases you know where to go to find those choices. Right. Okay. And um, I'm sorry to go back one more time again to the uh, new credit card that you were saying is looks like it might launch. How are they going to do this? Are they just taking the risk of running a, a credit card company? They're what they've done is they've created their own network and their own rails uh, to ride on so that uh, they're not using the MasterCard and Visa uh, Discover card rails. They've created a separate, almost like a 
think of it like a train track. You know, they've created now a separate train track that doesn't run on, uh, you know, the New York City subway lines or the, the uh, Amtrak. They've created their own supernet, uh, you know, uh, lines, uh, rails to be able to take that information from the borrower, validate it, return back a, uh, an approved code and be able to, to transmit business that way. We'll have to see how that works out. Um, you know, it's a big undertaking, but uh, I spoke to several of their people that are, uh, you know, experienced in the industry. And, uh, you know, one of them has been doing credit card processing since uh, I think 2005. So a lot of experience and hopefully they've figured out where the pitfalls are because it's a huge opportunity. And um, I think many people would love to be able to, you know, charge their marijuana. I remember when I first, my first purchase at a dispensary, I was able to use my Discover card. Oh. And that to me was, um, wow, this is great. I can't believe I can go into a place, have, you know, oodles of choices of, you know, the type of marijuana that I want to buy, and I can use my credit card in order to charge it. Wow. Yeah, that, that is a big wow. I, I think I was at a dispensary in Chicago and they took my debit card. Yeah, a lot of debit card, again, rides different rails. So those rails, um, uh, some people say that they've gotten approval from some of the smaller banks to be able to, to charge that, but not everybody wants to also pay that fee to use their debit card. Right, right. There is an that's, extra That's fee. the issue. I mean, yeah. someone like me, 350 I'd rather go down down to my ATM you yeah know, pull the money out and save the 350. yeah yeah no I know yeah that that was the thing it was like oh yeah because you're buying something they're adding the extra cost right exactly yes. um so do you does does alternative finance network offer other advisory services to ensure the loans don't default like do you offer any support to these entrepreneurs besides ushering them shepherding them through the the loan process? Yeah, we actually just started to offer a uh, packaging and preparation service for those companies that financials are not able to be submitted uh, because their balance sheet doesn't balance. They've got a lot of intercompany uh, transactions that need to be eliminated. Uh, we have found that uh, the accounting uh, services in this industry are lacking a bit or these entrepreneurs haven't gone to have professional accountants prepare their um, their uh, records and so we've taken it on ourselves because we want to provide um, loans to the industry and the very first thing you got to do is you've got to have you know your accounting in order in order to do that we also uh, for companies that are uh, you know borrowing working capital and uh, equipment we check in with them usually about every 90 days to take a look and see how they're doing. Uh, was the money that, that they forecasted they need and, and, and or the equipment they forecasted they needed, was that enough or are they short and need you know, additional funding? Because that's you, you know, one of the biggest reasons why people fail is they run out of, uh, of runway with the money they had because they wanted to come in very uh, thin in terms of what they need. They didn't anticipate running into the problems that people run into in the industry. 
And so as a result, um, you know, they can't get from A to C, they're only at, you know, they've only been able to go from A to B and they need a little bit more uh, cash to get from B to C, so. Um, yeah, so over overestimate, like you said earlier. Overestimate at least by, I would say, at least by 50% of what you think you need. If you don't need it, great. The money sits in the bank, you can sleep at night. But yeah. one of the worst things to do is run short and then you're up at night. Oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, where am I going to steal money from in order to, you know, have this project pay off and get to full, you know, full build out? Usually it's building out a cultivation, you know, that is expensive where there's a, um, errors or miscalculations in how much is needed. Right. And those costs could be huge if you're miscalculating. Yeah. And cultivation facilities, it's not like, you know, oh, I'm off by 50,000. You're off by a couple million at least. You like can those, be. You can be, yeah. right. Yeah. So I think that's a problem with most entrepreneurs like startups, but in this industry, it's even worse. Um, when you were talking about um, a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs don't hire accountants at the beginning, what are some of the best practices, or what are some of the things that they that they need to have in order that you're not seeing that they they have in order? So is it their balance sheets or their what what are the kind of things that you like? Show me your books or a lot of times their balance sheets don't balance or they have a lot of intercompany um, transfers. You know they've inflated their income uh, and. Uh, decreased their expenses or inflated their accounts receivable. So you've got to ferret through that and be able to know what's the real picture in a consolidated picture of, you know, the six companies you have, when we look at eliminating all of that, you know, what is the real picture is what I would say. Um, you know, that's one thing I think that uh, they don't um, provide enough cushion between ebbs and flows in, in cash flow. And they're also, they're, they're challenged because they're stretched very thin, you know, particularly the smaller companies. And that's why it's very difficult for small companies to survive a one store uh, shop because you've got to have compliance. You've got to have someone that really understands the state laws that's not going to get you in trouble or, you know, have you operating illegally. Um, you know, you need most of the same infrastructure that you do for one store as you do for five. And so, but if you, you don't have the revenues of five, it's very difficult to be able to, um, you know, operate or someone's operating outside of their comfort zone and outside of their expertise, which is a dangerous thing in a federally illegal business. Um, and so, People need to calculate what the costs are going to be, uh, what the proper costs are going to be to run and manage and be able to have the proper, you know, accounting and, uh, and other staff there. Okay, right. If there is, is there a certain, you know, part of the industry that you typically fund or you're, you, you feel like you feel safe? Like, is it cultivation, retail, CVG? I know you said ancillary is a great safe um, area to go in, but aside from that, like the more riskier ones, do you, do you think it's pretty we generally, yeah, we, we, we generally will look for, uh, real estate. So cultivations, uh, less so in the dispensary area, because many people do not, you know, buy 
their retail real estate, they'll lease it. Uh, we look for cultivations. Uh, we look for growth opportunities where someone, let's say, has a building that's 100,000 square feet. They've only built out 20,000. They now need the money to be able to build out the, uh, the rest of that or another portion of it. It's easy to justify those loans because they've got the same fixed rent expense. Now they'll just be expanding uh, the amount of product that they'll be able to grow and sell. Mm, that makes sense. Okay. Are there specific states that are more attractive for financial lending in the cannabis industry? Um, yes. The, we found the limited license states are really, really good. We like Arizona. Uh, we like Florida. Um, the East Coast states now, you know, that are starting to come on board. You know, we like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, anywhere where there's uh, Illinois is, a, is another state that we're working a lot in. Um, you know, we look for states where people got in early, uh, they borrowed uh, hard money loans at high rates. Now they've got uh, a need to be able to, you know, build out uh, or are, uh, are got a license where there's a cultivation involved. And now, for instance, we're uh, looking at a company that has a need to build out uh, the uh, needs to trench and build out power uh, about a mile to, to connect up to the substation. They need, uh, well, the total cost of the project is $20 million. Their portion is 5 million and they need $5 million, but they're unable to secure it with any equipment or real estate. So we're having to uh, carve out part of their senior secured facility in order to be able to get some real estate to be able to look to do this. But where we really specialize in, I think is difficult situations where it requires some creativity in order to be able to help that uh, business get the capital they need. Um, We've, I've got a very creative uh, analyst and uh, partner here, uh, John Thompson, that helps a lot with figuring out from the financials what we can look to do, mm. how we can carve this out, and how we can make it happen. Right, looking for the loopholes and right, right, that's great. Well, that was going to be my next question is how does alternative finance networks stand out from the rest? Is there... I think uh, our creativity, I think the fact that we've been uh, first on board, we know a lot of people in the industry, we've got a lot of different sources. Uh, when we can, we try to use bank and credit union financing and to be able to get the lowest possible uh, rate. But we also will negotiate on the borrower's behalf. And because we're fiduciary to the borrower, I think that we're able to help the borrower get the best possible costs. And a lot of times by utilizing us, it's better even than going to a source directly because we know where the give points are. We know, um, you know what kind of their bottom, bottom line is. And a lot of times we can make the case they really deserve a little bit better than your standard rate because of this reason, this reason, and this reason and we act in their behalf in order to do that. Or we had one instance where we got a line of credit for a borrower and because of the supply chain issues, they were having to ship a lot larger quantities than they really wanted to. And 
we got the lender to look at increasing the availability they had on that line so that they could uh, you know, get their business funded and, and be able to utilize the full amount of the line as opposed to what they had signed an agreement for and what the lender was certainly entitled to do. We were able to help uh, make the case to the lender to amend that portion of the, uh, of the agreement and give them what they wanted. So it's always good to have an advocate on your side, particularly someone like us that sends a lot of business to lenders. And therefore, when we speak to a lender, they know that there's something behind that, that they could end up um, not receiving all of the business that we would send to them. And we could you know, switch um, lenders if right. they, you know, uh, we're not going to be amenable to, you know, working with this particular client. Right. I mean, I can see you benefit both sides, the lender and the borrower, because the borrower, um, you have connections, uh, relationships with, what did you say, 100 and some different? 112 different lenders, yes. Yeah, and of all different types. And how were they going to know which one to approach based on their needs? And Correct. can help. I, it's it's a win-win all the way through. I, I I would absolutely. I would want to have your services if I was looking to um, borrow money in the industry for sure. Um, so I guess let's end with um, what excites you about the future of the cannabis industry. It could be in finance or not finance, any area that you're kind of looking at sure. well i think you know a couple of things kind of in general um all the new states coming on i think is super exciting particularly for the east coast i think cannabis is now you know uh there's less of a stigma than there was let's say in 2014 oh. when people would kind of laugh and you know make fun of you and that sort of thing i think we're finding more and more medical uses uh for the product i think that that is going to be a huge benefit for healthcare, for, uh, for people, uh, more and more seniors are being helped. Uh, people are being helped with sleep and, and other things. And then I'm excited about the fact that um, I'm hoping that uh, the uh, IRS is gonna do something with 280E taxation. It's really uh, an unfair burden to an industry that is uh, you know, legal in, in some way, shape or form in 47 states you know, 19 for adult use uh, and the rest for medical or CBD. I think it's high time that something, um, you know, changed in that because it's vastly unfair that a cannabis business doesn't get a chance to deduct the same expenses as a liquor store or any other business. And uh, I'm just, um, you know, very optimistic that things will continue to uh, roll out throughout the country and it's an exciting time to be in the uh, in the cannabis space and particularly in the debt space with the uh, equity markets really uh, you know suffering greatly with uh, everyone's um, you know prices way down in the, wow. uh, in the basement. So uh, I'm excited. I think 2022 is going to be you know a great year, and I think 2023 is going to be even better. And yeah, I appreciate especially... you joining me and talking to me and letting your uh, listeners and viewers know, um, you know, what they can do. I don't want to sound all doom and gloom. I just want to put a realistic spin. If you're, if you're somebody that's, uh, 
you know, got a couple hundred thousand dollars and is thinking about, hey, I'd like to get into a dispensary. I, I hear a lot of people, you know, are making money. I would say, um, you know, rethink that and relook at that, perhaps be a partner with someone or look at some sort of ancillary service because the industry needs a lot of ancillary services because, you know, we've grown up from nothing and, um, you know, we're now becoming really, I think, a uh, eight-year-old industry. Uh, you know, 2014 is when Colorado legalized. I think that's really where you started to see a lot of impetus into the industry, even though, you know, there's been medical marijuana as early as 1996 in, in California, it was really a cottage industry back then. And people were operating out of shoeboxes. There was no banking, you know, back then and, uh, or no, you know, legal above board banking. And so I think really 2014 is really when people um, started to have access to um, adult use marijuana and the industry really has started to grow since then. And it's been a fantastic ride. I mean, the first MJ BizCon that I went to 2014, there was 250 people there in a little uh, small uh, exhibit hall in downtown, uh, downtown Denver that um, I think we, there were seven exhibitors there. So, wow. yeah. I'd love to see where those people are today. You're one of them. So we see I'm one of them. You're one exactly. of them. But yes. uh, it would be, I would have loved to have been back in, in that time. And, you know, being in New York City, we were, you know, we're just coming out in the open. It's been, it was just, you know, you guys from the West Coast, you know, everybody's like living it up out there. Uh, it's so great to be, be at the party. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, anyway, so that was great. Um, thank you so much uh, for... Thank you, Pam. Thank you very much for having me on. You have a great day. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.